We're going to say some kind of nerdy words this episode. Hello again, and welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. And today we are going old school. Yeah, yeah. As, almost as far back as you can really go in theater. <laughs> we have, uh, up to this point, done only really plays of the past 50 years. And that's about to change. Um, you know, as the podcast is new, we are still establishing our rhythms and figuring out how our patterns of what scripts to do and how to talk about them are establishing. We do know that we want to include some of those classic great plays of theater in with these great modern scripts that we're exploring, too. So to that end... Um, the first of these kind of classic era plays that we're going to do is from as far back as you can go in theater history, almost. Um, one of the oldest plays in existence today, we are doing Oedipus Rex. Yes, indeed. The play written by Sophocles way back in the, sometime in the 5th century BCE. And uh, yeah, it's it, this has been a work that has been passed down through the ages uh, right away, kind of within with within a contemporary of a couple of years, I think, of his life, of Sophocles' life, was Aristotle. And Aristotle wrote the poetics, uh, comedy, and epic and tragedy. And amongst the plays that he cites within that work is Oedipus Rex, or Oedipus Tyrannus. And that work by Aristotle, anyone who has studied theater has read it. It was a vital part of theater for centuries, really until uh, all the way until Bertolt Brecht started doing his his own new way of doing theater. He referenced Aristotle as as a way of saying this is a different way of doing tragedy. Brecht's, Brecht's way of doing tragedy would be different than Aristotle's critique of Oedipus Rex. So this play has been intrinsic to theater for a long time. It is still done in some capacity every so often. Uh, it's always fun to see see houses do it. And uh, yeah, we're gonna it's it it is it is the the quintessential tragedy when you think about tragedies. Yeah, this is gonna be a play that you might have read as part of your education in some fashion. Um, even still there are high schools that teach it, although there may be other Greek plays with more um, uh, content appropriate for high schoolers. Um, but I, I read it in high school as part of my education. I think lots and lots and lots of college students read it as their kind of Greek tragedy education. We should say right off the bat that the translation Jack and I read, um, and we'll, we'll quote from maybe some today, although, um, you know, we don't do a ton of quoting, so it won't totally matter what translation you decided to read, but just for posterity, the translation that we worked off of for this is the translation by Dudley Fitz and Robert Fitzgerald. The play follows um, Oedipus the king. He We learn some backstory about Oedipus uh, pretty quick in the play, that he has come to the town of Thebes and has saved this town from a from a sphinx. Apparently, this sphinx had sort of ruled the town, 
killed anyone who couldn't answer its riddle, kind of classic Sphinx. Oedipus, this sort of common man out of the blue, was the one able to answer the Sphinx's riddle, and thus he became the new ruler of Thebes. He married the current queen of Thebes, Yocasta, and uh, her brother Creon, who's also in that line, um, is around for some of the play too. But at the beginning of the play, Thebes is suffering from horrible plague and curse. People are dying. Children are lying crylessly in the streets. I mean, it's a really bad situation for Thebes. So the, you know, if, if there's an inciting incident, the, the inciting incident is, is that the supplicants come to the palace, to Oedipus's palace, to beg that he does something about it. And he says, of course I'm going to do something about it. In fact, I'm already doing something about it. I've sent Creon, my brother-in-law, to to divine the will of the gods, to figure out what is happening. Creon comes back and says, good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is that we the gods have told us that there is a way to get rid of all this. The bad news is that we have to solve a decades-old murder, uh, yeah. just like, like a straight cold case. <laughs> and the the victim of the murder is the previous king of Thebes. That king was killed on a journey um, out away from the town, and now the town must discover what has happened. So Oedipus, in deciding to solve this, puts out a decree. Of course, the person who's responsible is going to be cast out from Thebes um, so that the plague and the curse will go away. Anybody who's harboring him is going to be cast out as well. And then Tiresias, the prophet, comes around. And Tiresias, in his blind prophet wisdom, says, Hey, Oedipus, it's you. You're the murderer. And Oedipus says, You're an idiot. The gods <laughs> must not know, any, or, or at least oracles must not know anything. There's no, you cannot divine the will of the gods like that because clearly you're wrong. I didn't kill him. I know I didn't kill him. And so begins this sort of battle of the play of can prophecies and oracles really divine the will of the gods? And um, is Oedipus and his ilk smarter than that? And so they don't have to bend to things like that. Well, of course, you know, there's no spoilers in this play, the oldest yep. theater play in history. It turns <laughs> out Oedipus was the murderer of the king. Um, and he then, in the horrible final image of the play, tears his own eyes out in response to what he's done. Of course, there's a lot that goes on there, more than that, and yeah. we'll talk about yep. it. But uh, in, that's sort of the core of the play. Oedipus learns that he is the murderer and tears his own eyes out, and thus has has discovered that he must bend to the will of the gods. That's really as short, I think, as you can make the plot, um, yep. and that even leaves out a whole bunch, because there's just a lot of plot that happens um, in each scene. Let's talk, first of all, Jackson, about, you know, in the kind of classic Greek tragedy uh, structure of characters, each of the main scenes really only has a few combatants and a chorus. They're, most of the scenes have Oedipus in them, and then one other or occasionally two other people. And that is, of course, part of Greek tragedy and its... Um, that's sort of part of its the the tropes of the of the of the structure of it. Um, yeah. How how did that strike you that we did not encounter all the characters together at one time? 
Yeah, well, what it, what it does right away is it lets each character get out their full thought, which is something, uh, you know, you don't see as much in current plays. Most of the time it's very vernacular and you're kind of bouncing back and forth between all the characters on stage. Everyone's interrupting each other. In this it, reading, in the reading of this play, I found that you are able to write fully unpacked thoughts. So these characters wind up sounding very sophisticated, very intelligent, because they're not interrupted by each other most of the time. Yeah, um, they really a, sort of speak in monologues. I mean, there is yeah. some back and forth, but a lot of the time, you know, their dialogue is really not less than two paragraphs. Yep. And you, you, I mean, yes, it's true. You do get the feeling that this is kind of, kind of a preachy style for these people. But again, like we're talking about within the context of these, these are not uh, plays about the vernacular people. These are not, uh, you know, the 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 uh, the citizens of the country necessarily. These are the leaders of the country, and they're comporting themselves with uh, dignity and and intelligence for the most part. Um, (laughs) uh, so, so, so that absolutely is, uh, served in this, in this, uh, lesser, less characters on stage and more time that each character can spend talking about it. I wonder, I do wonder, like, it, it feels a little more combative to me. Um, because having only two or three characters on stage, and even when there's three characters on stage, as I as I believe there is at least a couple times at the end of the play, even then it's really only two characters really engaging in the tension of the scene. So it, it tends to feel that every scene characters go to battle. Um, you know, the right away Oedipus and Creon they don't have necessarily a fight, but they establish the tension of the play. Then the next scene is Oedipus versus Tiresias, the prophet. And then yep. the next scene is Oedipus versus Creon. And then Yocasta comes and kind of intervenes in that. And then it's Oedipus versus the people that are coming in. And all these sort of accusations get flung at Oedipus, and he combats them back. So there's a, there's a good there's a sense of each of these scenes being being like a verbal uh, a joust of power. Um, every every line is another stab at the other person, and so that's why sometimes their lines seem long. Is that they 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 build up to these sweeping points that um, you know either they make whatever they're getting at, and then because they have so much time, they're able to make more forceful jabs at the other person. Yeah, and then that's followed up by. The, you don't even get a break in between these scenes because the chorus is structured around that too. The chorus is structured around two distinct bodies of chorus doing strophe and antistrophe against each other. Uh, antiphonal calling, like there are some accounts of these plays being produced in these kind of natural amphitheaters in these uh, valleys and the two choruses would be on two different sides of this valley and they would literally call across the valley to each other in this war of sound almost. So I, I absolutely agree that that carries through throughout the play and and it does it carries through throughout the play and the structure but it also carries through into the characters themselves how do you think Oedipus Oedipus Rex the the titan the titular character um how do you think he feeds into that that theme well he is an incredibly combative person 
And it's interesting, in his first scene, he seems to be fairly sympathetic to the plights of the supplicants. He indicates that it just breaks his heart to see the suffering of Thebes, that, you know, these are people he cares about. He's going to do everything he can to reach out. And then he eventually finds out he needs to solve this murder. And he says, I'm going to align myself. I'm throwing out the person who did it. And in this way, I align myself with the gods and with the citizens of Thebes to solve this terrible crisis. He seems to have the characteristics of a leader who is willing to sacrifice and stand up for what's right and 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 fight the fight the injustice in the world but then as soon as it it comes to him at all as soon as Tiresias even starts to poke at it actually at first what Tiresias does is say I'm not telling you anything. The truth is too terrible to say. No way. (laughs) And Oedipus doesn't even react to that well. It's like the first obstacle in his path, the first time somebody's like, I don't really want to talk about it, Oedipus is screaming at the top of his lungs about how they're (laughs) traitors to thieves. I mean, Traitor old man. How dare you talking to your birds? He has a great... he has a great insult in there, you you sightless, witless, senseless, mad old man. <laughs> what a great string of words there. And and yep. the other thing is when you learn when when Oedipus tells you the story of what happened on that road, um, the story is like they they tried to run me off the road, so I took a swing at him, and then because I took a swing at him, he hit me back, so I killed them all. <laughs> yeah, I killed all five of them. I mean, you, you get the sense that Oedipus is ha, may may have a little bit of a temper problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that and might I'd be the argue, understatement. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd argue it even starts earlier uh, than than the Teresa scene. He come like the first time he interacts with anyone is the chorus. And there's just like this one line that the chorus says, don't rest or whatever in your in your high palace, help us out. And he right away says, I hear you. I haven't been resting. I've been working. <laughs> like <laughs> he's already hey, off. Setting, I've been yeah. up. I'm I know what's going on, and I'm worrying about all of you, not just me. You have it easy. I'm worrying about you and the state and me. So <laughs> He's, he's a very, very combative character pretty much all the way until the end of the play. Right, yeah, the, the, that's him the whole play. Is He is a fiery, an energetic, uh, combative character. And it makes him, at the beginning of the play, I, I kind of like him um, because of how much energy and spunk he has. Uh, but by the end of the play, he's fair, he's just a fairly unsympathetic character. I think. Um, and part of that might be this, you know, this Greek structure of tragedies, which is the fall of the character. Um, you have a character like Oedipus, this king who has saved Thebes, who actually, you know, right away the chorus says um, to him that, you, you know, you're not a god. We understand that. However, we're still coming to you to make our prayers because you're the wisest of the mortals that we know because you beat the Sphinx. So right away, that you know, they, they say, well, you're not quite a god, but we're still going to pray to you. So they set Oedipus up as above and masterful. And then through the course of the play, he is denigrated and de- he just falls and falls and falls in his crush. So by the end of the play, that sort of that sort of stout King Oedipus doing what he can to save his city has become sort of an angry child um, that seems like he's throwing a temper tantrum in every scene. Yeah, he gets the floor just completely ripped out of him and you see the, the ramifications of that within that character who is so sure of themselves and sh- so willing to 
to put all their weight behind what they think is right. And when it turns out that it is counter to what they thought it was, the world is ripped out of them. That tragic flaw mentality. We're going to say some kind of nerdy words this episode. There's like, you know, the tragic flaw is the core tension of Greek tragedy and tragedy in general. It's this, this trait that in, in many situations can be viewed as a good trait, but then when applied to a certain situation becomes a blind spot for the sa- that same character that leads to their demise. And, and, and you're talking about the, the kind of taking the character of power and ripping it down as well. Uh, catharsis in Greek tragedy, this feeling of, uh, it's a little hard to nail down, this feeling of kind of wholeness afterwards, maybe, or like having gone through a spiritual yeah, it's, it's experience. It's like getting to experience something that can take something out of you. That yeah. you know, you might think of a catharsis as like you're really mad at your parents, so you go into your bedroom and you scream and scream and scream at the walls, and you hit the pillows, and you you rage in your own bedroom, and and then afterwards you're kind of you feel uh, like satisfied. That'd be a catharsis. Yeah. It's not it's not really encountering the real the real thing, but it's through something that is um, put in place of the real thing, you can experience some letting go. Um, something moves out of you. So I think for Greeks, a lot of it was the sort of negativity that seeing theater and seeing these tragic falls of these characters was a way to let out some of their negativity. And that might be a reason why the plays are so stinking combative. I mean, the characters are just fighting with each other the whole play. And part of that might be as a way to release some of this need to fight with people around you. It's, you know, it's sort of like you go see the latest Marvel movie and you (laughs) get out some of your need to punch your friends because you see (laughs) these people on the screen punch their friends. And so it releases you from some of that. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Throughout this play, that that kind of combative nature would be a good way to kind of experience vicariously the the emotions of these characters. And then also, I think, uh, within this structure, certainly Aristotle talks about this in his critique of the play, uh, the have you, you experience this catharsis through the pity and fear that you have associated with this character because you have... This, I, I find him to be... I mean, he is reprehensible by the end, but also the ramifications of the realizations that he's making are very pitiful like and are worth worthy of pity right um, it, it, it's interesting that there's sort of two levels to the plot there's this level of discovering what has happened which is horrible and in which if you excuse the fact that Oedipus murdered the king, if you assume it was really in self-defense, that he was run off the road by this caravan and sort of attacked by them, and so in response was forced to defend himself and kill them all. So if you can excuse that, then the results of what happened seem to be almost entirely out of his hands. He came upon this town, saved the town from disaster, was named king, got to marry the queen, all of which he had no idea was his family— Yep. So there's that level of the plot where he's sort of a victim. Then there's this second present level of the plot where he is very much not a victim and where I think where he starts to feel more apprehensible is in his accusations against Creon. Yeah. That it's not just I don't believe what's happened, but it's I don't believe what's happened and so this must be a plot against me my my brother-in-law kill him. Not just hey, are you trying to stab me in the back? What's going on, man? But you must be trying to stab me in the back, so I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Now, he doesn't kill him, but he he's try, he tries to. Yeah, absolutely. That that That's important to kind of see the two distinctions there because he is so blind. He is so blind to his, to, to his ability. Well, he is arguably excusably blind because who 
would foresee that coming, but he turns on his friends and or he turns he turns on his family, which is and, another and and that's really the core of the tragic flaw because that other part of the plot where he unfortunately has in his ignorance ended up killing his own father in his ignorance saved the town of Thebes and married his own mother who he did not know what his was his mother we assume she was just an attractive queen of Thebes and he was offered the power you know chance to be king so in that plot. He's not really at fault for that. In you know, in the in the society of the Greeks he is, and so the play holds him responsible and he holds himself responsible for that terrible plague that's come upon because of the, all these terrible things. But, you know, in, in our sensibilities, we understand that he's just sort of part of the wheel on that. That's just sort of things that happen to him. So in that part, there, there's not much of a tragic fault or a tragic characteristic for Creon, or for Creon, for Oedipus. <laughs> it's it's in that present moment of the play where his flaw comes to bear, where he is prideful enough to assume that what he is being told is just lies by other people, and spiteful enough to then accuse the people who have stood by him of uh, of of trying to stab him in the back and take his throne. Yep, and I think I think we can, I think that's very tightly tied to Tiresias, and I think the kind of the the theme within that is that he refuses to respect the authority of the gods. That seems to be a huge part of it. So it's not just that he is unwilling to hear other people's other people's accounts that are arguably very personal. They, I mean, they they name him as the killer of the of the former king, Laius. But it is specifically that he thinks, from the beginning almost, his first line to Tiresias has this line about reading the birds or playing with your birds or something like that. It's more respectful than that in the first line. But from the beginning, he is very... um, He treats the gods with disrespect, which makes sense for a character who found out that the gods had decreed that he would kill his own father and marry his own mother and thus ran away from his home in Corinth to try to find a new life somewhere and can never return home because of this proclamation. So he is he is dis, uh, disposed towards disdain for the gods and he turns out to be completely... This is, this is the real kind of crux of this play that gets into kind of some interesting ground in terms of human agency, but... He is completely subservient to the gods, even though he rages against them the whole time. So I think I think I want to kind of drill down onto Tiresias a little bit in that scenario, because Tiresias is kind of the crux around which that conflict focuses. Or, or um, at least the first instigator of it, because he he is summoned by Creon, um, or, or, or actually Creon advises Oedipus to bring Tiresias to divine who the murderer is. Tiresias is a prophet, he is an oracle, he is able to divine the will of the gods. So they figure, Creon figures, hey, bring Tiresias, he might be able to tell you who killed him, and we'll wrap this thing up pretty quick. And so Oedipus says, yeah, 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 okay, let's bring Tiresias. Tiresias comes, and his, his immediate interrogation is, look, you do not want to know the truth of this. Oedipus says, yes, I do. Tracy says, no, you do not. <laughs> you really <laughs> we don't. You should just keep this down, huh? <laughs> and Oedipus says, you're a traitor and an evil old man if you won't tell me. So finally, Tracy says, it's you. You did it. You killed him. 
it's you. And then he kind of, he sort of starts to imply through some trickery, word trickery, that Oedipus is also sleeping with his own mother. He does not come right out and accuse him of that yet. Uh, and, right. and actually he doesn't in the play, but he does, he certainly implies it. And if you already know that at the end of the play, you can see that in some of Teresius's lines. But the main accusation is you did it. You killed him. It's you. That means you need to be cast out of the city. You're the curse on Thebes. And Oedipus's response is, you're just making this up. This isn't the will of the gods. You don't know the will of the gods. Creon has paid you off to frame me for the murder. And so you're just going to cozy up to Creon. You don't have any real power to divine the will of the gods. You crazy, stupid old man. So why, why is that important to the context of, the, of this play? Why are the, why is it brought, why is that accusation brought by someone who is of the gods? Do you think that the gods are as important as, as are, as, as kind of what I'm arguing that, that uh, Sophocles is making a pretty strong point for that, that the, the ways of the gods cannot be averted? Right. The, the ways of the gods in this case are given in the form of a couple of prophecies. And those prophecies are sort of pre-play. They're given to a couple different characters pre-play. Um, Yocasta and her husband, the previous king of Thebes, the murdered victim, um, they have received a prophecy that their son is going to grow up and kill the king of Thebes. So in response to that, Yocasta and her husband, the king, uh, they have the son, but the king immediately has the baby stabbed through the ankles and thrown out in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah. There's and so many like gory horrible things in this of play. Babies. So that happens yeah. in response to that prophecy. Uh, Oedipus learns a prophecy that he is going to uh, kill his own father and sleep with his own mother, and ma- actually marry his own mother. And he, at this time, is living in Corinth, believing himself to be the true son of the king and queen of Corinth. So as a response to that prophecy, Oedipus leaves that town of Corinth, goes on a journey. Along the journey, he's almost run off the road by this caravan from thieves. He kills everyone. Lo and behold, (laughs) in that caravan is the king of thieves. He kills the king of thieves and uh, arrives at Thebes, saves the town, marries the queen, and then at the end of the play, of course, the crucial revelation learns that he is actually the son of Yocasta and the king of Thebes. He was that baby who was stabbed through the ankles and thrown out. So actually, in trying to run away from the god's will, the prophecy that he received that he's going to kill his parents, so Oedipus runs away from Corinth and runs smack dab into the prophecy by and runs across the king of Thebes on the road. Ends up yep. so it's actually in trying to escape the prophecy that Oedipus that Oedipus is stuck in it, right? Which is just brilliant writing, uh, <laughs> like to imagine that that level of kind of folded over plot. Um, to 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 and it's more the release of information in that way. When the reversals come, there's a couple of them, but there's one big one, which is when the the messenger comes from Corinth to tell Oedipus that his father is dead. Um, Oedipus receives this news as if, oh, this is great news. Clearly, the prophecy is false. I did not kill my father, the, his assumed father, who is the king of Corinth. And he come and so he's still worried about the prophecy. But then the messenger within the same like the same page tells him, oh, were you worried about that? Oh, you you didn't need to be worried about that at all. He's like trying to give him good news. You didn't need to be worried about that at all your whole life. I brought you from here. 
<laughs> Which, you know, it, look, the play was written at a very different time than ours. So it's, I mean, this is not a critique of Sophocles. He no. wrote a, a different play at a different time, but that is awfully convenient. <laughs> it just, on our modern ears, I think, for me at least, it strikes me as a little contrived. Yep. And, and, and that, again, that is not a critique because, of course, Sophocles was writing a different kind of play for a different kind of audience. So, right. the, you know, it, the will of the gods creating some coincidence like that is a whole part of that culture and a part of the play. So that that's all well and good. All I'm saying is that to our modern ears, that coincidence rings a little bit contrived. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. And and then the second one that then the, the the one that comes after that actually felt worse to me, which is that they have they've summoned a shepherd who was the shepherd that managed to escape the caravan on the road. The one man that escaped the wrath of Oedipus on the road and managed to get back to Thebes. They've summoned for him so that he can tell them what happened on the road. Then that that same messenger who's come from Corinth to tell Oedipus that his parents are dead says, "Oh, I did. I wasn't actually the one that found you. This other <laughs> shepherd gave you to me when you were a baby." And Oedipus yeah. says, "Who was that shepherd?" And one of the chorus guys says, "Well, it's the same shepherd that you summoned before. It's <laughs> yeah. actually it's the same guy. <laughs> it's the same guy." <laughs> and just you know, those modern ears go, yeah, "Is it?" Really? Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Okay. You ran out of actors, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> ran out of actors. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, yes. I mean, Sophocles is making uh, a pretty strong argument for the inescapable nature of the will of the gods, and and what I love is. Um, Later, late in the play, Yocasta has been trying to convince Oedipus sort of all along. How much she actually knows and when she figures it out is an interesting question. But yeah. somewhere along the line, she's decided her best course of action is to convince Oedipus that the will of the gods is unknowable. And, and I actually think that Oedipus's shirking off is not so much of the gods, but it's of the ability to know the will of the gods. He sort of shirks off prophecies and divinations um, as if nobody, nobody's smarter than him. So how could, anybody smart, how could anybody be smarter than him and know the will of the gods? Nobody can. And Yocasta really feeds that. And somewhere late in the play... She, she comes to the crux of it and says something like that. She says, look, people like that are crazy. Prophecies don't happen. The prophecy was supposed to be that my husband's son will kill him, but clearly that didn't happen. We killed that baby. Right. Um, so, you know, prophecies are crazy. Nobody can know the will of the gods. And that, that, that safety net is what keeps Oedipus going. But then it turns out that the will of the gods is what has been guiding everything along all along. And so the feeling of, well, I just I can't know God's will, and so I shouldn't have to pay attention to it, is proven so demonstrably and so horribly wrong. That in truth, we have to, you know, Oedipus is forced to listen to the people around him. And if he had all along, there might have been some of this horrible fate he could have escaped. I think uh, you, you, you said something in there, too. And I think you, we, should, we should talk about Yocasta as long as we're right, we're right there right now. Because I think it's really important to know, both as the, the actor and the director, but for the story in general... And we don't. I don't think we have to come to a conclusion, but I'd be curious to know if when you think Yocasta figures figures it out. Yeah, we have to. I mean, we know for a fact that she knows a couple things straight out. The first thing she knows is that the baby's not actually dead. So all of her, all of her wooing and wooing about, oh, well, we killed that baby, so of course he couldn't be the one that killed my husband. So that's right. craziness. We know straight up that that's not true. 
that that's a lie. So even right. when she's saying, don't worry about the will of the gods, the gods said my husband was supposed to be killed by a son, but we killed that son. Even when she's saying that stuff, there's some falsity in it. I don't know if at that point she knows Oedipus is her son and that he actually did do the killing. But for all she knows, one of the highwaymen who were supposed to have killed the king was that baby. So she's making that stuff up. So at the very least, she knows that, that the baby they thought that the baby she claims to have killed is not dead. When she figures out that Oedipus is that baby is a more more swervy road. I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that she knows it way before Oedipus does. Yeah. And that I think a lot of her kind of final scene of she, she right as Oedipus is about to call the shepherd in to talk and he's going to learn the truth. Her argument is basically, don't do this. You don't have to do this. This is dumb. Let's just live in the happiness we have. The truth will be terrible. You know, so she's trying to get him not to talk to that shepherd. That's a pretty big clue that she knows probably what the shepherd is going to say. Yeah. But somewhere in there, I think she figures it out. I personally don't think she knows from the beginning, but what do you think, Jackson? I don't think she knows prior to the to the events of the play. I think that she has, for the most part, uh, lived with the sequence of events as they were. This person uh, was came into the city, saved the city, and the, the people of the city offered him kingship, and thus she needed to marry him. Um, they seem to be somewhat affectionate, so... At least, at least initially, and I, I would this 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 would be the interesting decision. I think it absolutely happens before the last scene. I think she knows by the time she's offering sacrifices. In my opinion, oh, that's um, interesting. That's pretty. That's maybe uh, that might be earlier than I think, but that's interesting. Yeah, I'd argue that once he describes the events on the road, that he when he fesses it up, I think, I think. If you have, if you are sitting in the knowledge from, uh, you know, let's say, let's say 20 years ago, you went and rather than killing the baby that your husband told you to kill, you saved it and sent it out into the world. Um, and then 20 years later, this person describes killing, (laughs) killing the king all on his own within killing five guards all in his own, all within the context of being worried that he himself killed the king, I think there is an argument, at least, for that realization to come quite early for Yocasta. Um, yeah, I, and I actually think... Uh, now I'll kind of backtrack on what I said earlier. I actually think there's probably some argument made that she knew, she knows all along. Um, you know... There's some tradition of the idea that, especially in art, the idea that a mother will always recognize her child. Mm, yeah. Um, so the fact that she's, you know, it, what what complicates that, I think, and part of this just me, might be the play gritting on sort of our modern readings, is that she still marries him and has children by him. So yep. if your decision as an actress, as a director, is that Yocasta knows who this is the whole time, that you'll have to find the world in which she's still decided to sleep with him. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. Which, you know, it's a weird world. So yeah. <laughs> that could happen. It yeah. does happen. So, you yeah. know, that's not outside the realm has, of possibility. Yeah, but, she even has a dismissive line about it later on. Like, oh, everyone lies with their mother in their dreams. Right, that's exactly right. So there, <laughs> that might be in her just as a person. 
Right. Yeah, all sons dream about sleeping with their mothers. No biggie. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, I think I think I th- I think knowing that is a fun a fun decision for whoever is playing Yocasta to try to figure out when that realization comes. Uh, because because it has so much bearing on the rest of of the motivation of that character throughout the middle of the play because the whether you choose for the realization to come quite early or quite or or certainly before Oedipus it must come before Oedipus I don't think there's any way you can make the argument that she doesn't know well, right. by the I time mean, the she, shepherd she comes. goes off into the palace to kill herself earlier than yeah. Oedipus does so she at the very least, even if she's just as ignorant as Oedipus all along, she definitely figures out earlier than him because she leaves to kill herself earlier than he leaves to hurt himself. Right, yeah. So just structurally, you can't get away with not doing that. Uh, <laughs> but I think it can lead to some really interesting subtext for whoever is playing Yocasta, depending on when you when you decide she she figures it out because there are, there are quite a few she... she 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 tries to kind of comfort Oedipus within the context of his worry about this investigation, and the dis- where you put that decision decrees whether that is an a uh, kind of an earnest comfort or a guilty comfort, or you know trying or a, to hide a what manipulative she did. comfort. It, there we go. You know, yeah, she she cares about him, but she also doesn't want her life upended, and so she's trying to convince him to let this go. Unfortunately, what she's running up against is that there's just not really the chance to let it go anymore. Even if Oedipus decided he didn't personally care, he's the ruler of a city in which people are dying. The city is being poisoned from the inside out by the fact that this horrible thing is happening in the house of the king. So it's one of those great, you know, we don't write anymore a ton of plays about kings and queens and rulers. You know, at the very least, we might get some plays about politicians, but even those aren't very popular anymore. We write mostly plays about normal folk. Um, But it's one of those great things about those plays about rulers is that the stakes are so high in everything that they do. When you write a play about a king, the whole kingdom is on their shoulder. It's it's sort of you know we, we'll go back to superhero movies. It's sort of like watching you know the latest Marvel movie. You know you see Captain yeah. America. The weight of the world of the universe is on his shoulders, and so there's 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 a lot of breaking pressure on him. And so you see that come through in the play that you know, Costa can make all the arguments she wants, but Oedipus does not have a choice. He has the weight of his city of his kingdom on his shoulders to keep it upright. To keep the thing moving forward. And the chorus talks a little bit about that, especially early in the play, that, you know, you're the ruler. You're the thing that has to be stalwart in the midst of the storm. You have to bear it all and keep the ship moving forward. And then actually in the next play of this cycle, Antigone, that that theme comes through really strong in that play too. That now yeah. Creon, the ruler, has is the same thing, has to keep the ship straight amidst all the pressures. He's the one who's got to keep it in control. So then why is why is it always a failure at the end? That is that like that is the interesting question to me like because because culture reveals certain certainly that culture revered that the ability to keep it running like the the chorus is is the people like it's not a out of the out of the realm of out of the ballpark sort of way for them to interact with the king to expect them to be able to run it. Why 
why must Sophocles hurt these people? <laughs> well, I mean, of course, the easy answer is just that that's the structure of Greek tragedies. He just, they right. have to. If you're going to write a Greek tragedy, the character's got to fall. Um, but, you know, the more complex look is at the choice to write, as just as a culture, the choice to write these tragic flaws into these um, so admirable characters. You know, the, the tragic flaw does not come, I mean, you know, all everybody has some, but the, character, the, the tension of the play is around the tragic flaw of someone who is otherwise capable, otherwise admirable, otherwise good. But deep in that strength is this hidden weakness. And it's not just, and it's not, I don't think, I mean, you know, you could examine it across a bunch of different plays, but typically in one of the great choices for the first dramas of theater, that weakness is not an old illness or something that is out of their control. The weakness is the choices that they make. And that, of course, of course, that's at the core of what drama is. It's about how the choices we make move us forward, move us backward, put us in conflict with other people, with other characters. Choices are at the heart of what happens. And so the core of this tragic flaw is that even our leaders, our rulers, the people we look up to, make choices that can bring the whole kingdom down on your heads. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And to kind of yes and it, this is kind of, if you think about this, this play was kind of, was written within the context of one of the bedrocks of where democracy started. So the the philosophical minds of that of of that area were all towards this, and you have these plays about, uh, you know, I'm spacing on the word. What is the word for a single ruler? A monarchy. <laughs> Thank you, a monarch. You have these monarchs who are 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 arguably still trying to do the best that they can, but even the people at the highest level are flawed. And to still show that flaw as a result of it, I think that is, I think it's kind of cool that it's indicative of of that style of of government and philosophical thought as well. Right, and Shakespeare gets a lot of credit for much later in time writing characters, even characters who are supposedly without flaws, like kings, as being flawed, troubled characters. But of course. He ain't the first one to think of that. <laughs> yeah. The core of drama, the, the the cradle of this form of storytelling is about that. That's that's what the that's what the core plays are. Are about rulers making choices that hurt people and end up hurting themselves. And it you know, it it's a warning. It in the culture it's a warning, and it's a warning to us yeah. and that's why this this play and plays like it I think have staying power. Uh, they're in, in part they are produced because the, because of their historical value. So that's probably a lot of the reason why these plays are produced now. And and some of the conventions of it strike very weird to us. It's very weird to have the chorus involved in a play, especially in this height of capacity. But the other thing that these plays have are deep warnings that still apply to us. If you you know the warning of of Oedipus Rex. If you feel like you are above the will of higher powers. If you feel like you have it all figured out and anybody who accuses you, anybody who suggests that you might be wrong is a traitor, you are going to bring the kingdom down on your head. Yeah. I'm so bummed that you got there before I teed you up for that because I had a great <laughs> question to lead into that. But that's totally right because like, I think, I think we have to ask the question as we read this play, why still do this play? 
because it's a tough play to do. Uh, there, it, it will not play the same to to a regular person who just walks into this show. You have to have a high level of understanding to understand the show. So, of of theatrical traditions and also an ability to walk in and say, "Yeah, it's okay. I'm watching a play about people who would gladly kill their babies and they wind up marrying their parents and killing their parents. That's fine. It's fine." And um, you know, in the middle of the scenes, these these choruses do these weird, almost unintelligible poems. Yeah that have really specific references to the place and time wherein they were written. So, I but but I think you're absolutely right because plays like these aren't necessarily it's it's hard to write a play like this within the context of our current world. Uh, we don't we don't revere rulers in the same way anymore. I think across the board that's that's pretty much true. Even places that have a ruler of this power, we do not revere them. The people don't go to them necessarily the greater populace don't go to them and say please you are almost a god fix our problems it is it's you don't you don't see this come come through within within a current contemporary theater but the themes that jacob already said that that prevail throughout this of even the even the highest can have flaws and if you're not careful if you are given this level of authority you could fall into the same trap i think that 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 crucial ability where we started using theater to instruct within the context of of some of the populace at large is is not always the reason to go to theater but is certainly an important part of the theatrical tradition that should carry on absolutely creon at the end of the play i think his last line you know is something like you you know you're not in charge anymore but remember that when you were you served your own destruction. And, and that's the warning. You, if you, are not, if you are not humble, if you are not cautious, if you are not um, loving and gentle and peaceful, all the fruits of the Spirit, if you don't contain those in yourself, <laughs> you will serve your own destruction. And it's a play that applies just as much to me, and I am about as far away from a king as it gets. <laughs> but that's the, you know, that's plays about kings are never about kings. They're about the, the, the lessons that these kings and queens and rulers learn that apply to ourselves. You know, the Greeks walk away from seeing a play like this, having experienced their this sort of letting go that theater has, the sort of relief of seeing something happen, this catharsis. And hopefully they and then us hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later walk away and can can capture that gem. Be very careful or you will serve your own destruction. Be very humble or you will serve your own destruction. I've liked this play for a long time. We did it uh, in my high school as as a one act, which is a terrible idea, but I read the whole play at the time and I played Oedipus Rex in it. And so this this role has been bouncing around in my head forever. So I'm so glad we wound up talking about it. Is there anything else we're missing before we kind of taper down on this? Is there anything? I think I, I, I am such a fan of it still. I think it is worth the time to read it and interact with it and see it if you can, if you ever find some place to, to see it. No, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we've hit what we wanted to hit. I, I do. I just want to... Uh... Just because I really like the line, I want to bring up a line. Um, it's it's in the exchange between Creon and Oedipus. This is um, just after he has Oedipus has accused Creon of plotting with Tiresias. So it, 
Tiresias has come and gone, and Oedipus has said, you paid him off to test to say that I'm the murderer, you must be trying to keep my throne, and Oedipus is questioning him, and Creon is saying, you, there's no facts behind this, this is just your conjecture, I am blameless, I just, I just told you to do what we could do to solve the murder, what's going on here? Um, and Oedipus asks him a question, and he... Um, he, Creon doesn't know the answer, and he gives one of the greatest comebacks I think in all of theater. So Creon asks him about why the, why did the prophet say that, and Creon says, "I I don't know, and I'm the kind of person who keeps my mouth shut when I don't know things." Yeah, what a oh. what a clapback! That what is a, burn. a great response. <laughs> uh, every time I've ever read that play, I've always been like, I want to just deliver that line. Yeah, I could do anything <laughs> just to just to play Creon in this play and say that line. Yeah, I'm the one who keeps my mouth shut when I don't know things. <laughs> if you want to mine for a couple of great comebacks, at least read the Oedipus and Creon scene and the Oedipus and Tiresias scene. Yeah, those are there's <laughs> so energetic, so fun, yeah, so there's so some full Shakespeare of great level insults. burn happening there. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think that's kind of it for this one. It's a little bit shorter, but we want to keep it at this this kind of range anyway. We we like talking talking for a long time, but we know it is long. Um, it is so great to continue this conversation with all of you on online as well. So if you have done Oedipus Rex, read it for a theater history class or whatever way that you interacted with it, we'd love to hear your your thoughts on it as well. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, if that's your thing. We'll post on Instagram, mostly just pictures of the plays we read, but we'll figure out something else to post on there eventually. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in process of this, uh, this really fun journey. We hope that you guys will go along with us. We, Jackson and I, we love talking about plays. I hope that comes through that, you know, we're passionate about it. we, we we are willing to take risks in saying these things that we think about them. I, I hope you know that we're not always right. We probably need some correction in the comments about things that we said that weren't quite on, especially about a play like this, which has a lot of history and a lot yeah. of theater theory around it. So please don't hesitate to, to say, actually, you guys, that wasn't quite the right way to use such and such right. a phrase or whatever. Um, we're happy to engage in those conversations. What we, what we love is just delving into kind of the core of a play. And this is, this is a play that's got a deep and firm core to uh to to uncover and um you know just just revel in if if being educated and working in theater gives you one thing it's a thick skin so please <laughs> contradict us and <laughs> you will not personally hurt our feelings probably and <laughs> yeah, we'll leave probably on the table yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we look forward to the interaction with you so until next week i'm jackson nikolai i'm jacob man christensen this is no script we'll see you next week bye